Hey, everybody. This is Patrick, the Chief Monkey and founder of Wall Street Oasis. Just wanted to first off say thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Second, wanted to make sure for any of you in the market for financial modeling training, remind you that Wall Street Oasis does have some incredible financial modeling training courses, including Excel modeling, financial statement through, you know, linking up the three statements, DCF, valuation, M&A, LBO, um, even more niche courses like 13-week cash flow, venture capital course, real estate modeling, you name it. Go ahead and check them out at wallstreetoasis.com slash courses. Thanks for the support. Wouldn't it be cool if there was a Netflix for finance? Well, there is. It's called Real Vision, and it gives you unprecedented access to some of the most respected names in finance. Watch interviews with legends like Kyle Bass, Jeff Gunlock, Stanley Drunkenmiller, and many, many more. If you want to be part of the Real Vision revolution, visit realvision.com slash WSO. Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Grodnick, and this is Moving Up, a podcast about secrets to success, struggles along the way, and life in general. Today on the pod, Henrique, the co-founder and CEO of one of the fastest growing companies in Silicon Valley, and now a unicorn, Brex. Henrique is so accomplished, and he's 22 years old. His story and how he's done so much at such a young age just ahead. Our demo at Finnovate in San Francisco last week went really well. It's two days of startups, pitches. There were like 65 companies, uh, and pretty much everyone in the banking world is there. Most of the startups are technologies for pretty boring back-end banking stuff like identification or fraud. So when we got up to demo pay club in front of a couple thousand people, the audience was excited. After the demo, about 50 people came up to us with ideas to collaborate or interest in investing. So it's early days, but I think the conference is going to be really, really good for us. As I always talk about, raising money for a startup is so much about momentum in the fundraise. Who comes in, how fast you're filling up the round, I guess like anything else, supply and demand. There has to be a sense of scarcity. It's the same thing with my 10-month-old daughter. She wants what she can't have. She wants to crawl away from her toys and towards the electric outlet. We should probably give her all the cupcakes she wants and tell her she can only have broccoli after she finishes her cake. That's how our brains work. It's no different with investors. That's why these conferences are so important. Not only do you meet new people and hear new ideas, but you're just in the loop. You're in demand. And people are coming to you instead of the other way around. I think I did a good job today. We got a little on pay club. And because it's Mother's Day, we got a little on my family too. Nice balance. Okay, let's get into the interview. Enrique from Brex, sitting in your office. We're sitting right outside the Oracle Park, the baseball field. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to speaking with you. I mean, in terms of fintech goes, like you've got the number one. Like all you hear about is Brex. <laughs> well, I, I guess that's a good thing. Yeah, it's good to be talked about. I mean, let's let's get into your background and kind of how you got to this point. You're a pretty young guy, and then we'll talk about how you've got the word out there for Brex. That sounds like a pretty good way to structure the the interview. Sounds good. Sounds good. Um, you grew up in Brazil. Yeah. Born and raised, uh, I just moved here September 2016. Um, and you were an entrepreneurial kid. You were born, I mean, how, where did that come from? Were your, were your parents entrepreneurs? Like, No, so it actually started out because I started coding. Um, because, you know, there was this game I wanted to play when I was 12. And it was a paid game. And I figure out if I learned how to code, I could actually play it for free. Um, so I kind of built, you know, my own version of that game that got super popular and I would consider, you know, 
that my first entrepreneurial experience until, you know, two years later, I got these legal notifications saying I was breaking some sort of patents. I didn't know what patents were, honestly, but my mom got really upset and told me to shut my game down. Um, so, you know, that's kind of how I started out. And then after that, I, um, I went to work for a startup, you know, and that person raised money and hired a bunch of people. So I kind of saw that journey for a year. Then I tried to start my own startup and it failed miserably. And then the second startup that I tried to start actually worked. Um, it was a payments business down in Brazil called Pagarme, which was like, you know, what Stripe is here, but down in Brazil. So, you know, kind of like payment processing. Um, so we built, you know, that company and then we sold and then we came to the U.S. How do you have any, I mean, how old are you when, when you're doing this Pagarme? Uh, we started it last year of high school, so we were around 16. So how did a couple of 16-year-olds have any idea about, you know, payments? Um, so what happened was that, you know, my co-founder, Pedro, he was also an engineer. He started coding when he was nine, actually. Um, and then Pedro, when he was 12, he, he found the first jailbreak for the iPhone 3G in the world, which is like super cool. Um, and because of that, he was one of the only people in Brazil that knew about, you know, um, iOS security. So Brazil's largest payment company hired him to work for them when he was 14 basically because there was no one in Brazil that knew about IS security and they were launching a payments app. So obviously it needed to be much secure. So, you know, he had worked in payments during his teenage years. And at the same time, I had, you know, built this app, which is like a dating app. And, you know, I started charging my users, um, you know, a, a fee to know who their match was. It was kind of like Tinder, but instead of geolocation, it was Facebook friends. And, you know, I had this very bad experience implementing this very bad, you know, um, payment method in Brazil. So when we met in 2012, we actually met, funny story, we met over Twitter, um, basically fighting text editors in versus Emacs. And we started talking about building a company together. And we decided that, you know, payments was this thing that was very bad. We could probably do something better. Got it. Interesting. Uh, so you, you meet this guy, you develop a uh, Twitter relationship and you say, let's go solve this payments problem together. And you did it, right? Yeah, exactly. It worked out. Um, we grew the company to over 150 people, around a billion and a half in transaction volume, and we sold it in September 2016 to a uh, another Brazilian bank. Wow, pretty cool. So, what do, what are you thinking then? You're like, I know how to do this startup thing. It's pretty easy. I'm gonna go do this again. Mm, well, definitely not pretty easy. Um, no, we sold it for a few reasons. Like one, we got into Stanford here in the U.S. and okay. we kind of wanted to check college out. Both of you got into Stanford. Both of us got into Stanford. It was a package yeah. deal. Hopefully. I, I would be, you know, people ask me what I would have done if, you know, just one of us got in. And I don't honestly don't know. Like, it would be really shitty. Um, so, you know, we, we, we both got in. We both, uh, so we both had this deadline that, you know, we deferred college for two years and we kind of needed to come again. So we were like, okay, like, you know, we kind of have to decide if we're going or not to Stanford. And we kind of wanted to check it out. Second thing is, you know, we wanted, I think the liquidity when you're a first time entrepreneur, you know, you're excited about, you know, the, the liquidity part of the, the building a company as well. And three, we thought that, you know, Pogarma could be a big, a big business, but not like something massive. And we always liked the idea of working like 20 years in one specific problem. Um, and we're like, well, if we're going to work 20 years in a problem, it might as well be something very big. And, you know, by being just in Brazil, being kind of like a local company, we thought it couldn't reach global scale. 
So, you know, um, it's probably wasn't going to be it. So we say, okay, let's go to the U.S., go to Stanford, and then figure out what to do next. Got it. Okay. So you and your co-founder, you move to America, and you come to Stanford. And, I mean, I imagine like any college student, you're thinking, all right, I'll go here for four years and then figure it out. But you were there much less than four years, right? Yeah, we stayed around six months. Six months. Um, and I think that, you know... I think we always knew we weren't going to do the whole four years. You know, we thought we would do two years, three years, one year, like something, you know, in that range. Four years seemed like a lot. Um, we definitely knew that we were going to start a company in the middle. We just didn't know it would be so fast. Uh, we thought we were going to hang out at college, like, you know, for longer. Um, so, you know, but then we, we just, when we decided to start a company, we were like, nah, we hate payments, like all these banks, you know, like. We want to do something in the cutting edge of the bleeding edge of technology, right? So we decided to start a VR company while at Stanford. And, you know, and then we got a YC of that VR company. But in NYC, we completely gave up on it and then started Brex. Quite a pivot. Yeah, very different. I mean, how, tell, me how, tell me about that. How did it come to be? Basically, you know, the, the best advice I got at that time is try to start a company that you as a founder have, you know, a unique perspective or a competitive advantage compared to other founders if they were to start a similar business. Yeah. Why you? Yeah. And, you know, and the way, so, you know, why us for VR? Absolutely no reason. We had absolutely no clue what we were doing. So, you know, that was probably like, yeah, we shouldn't do VR. And then payments, like, because we had built this payments company before, we just knew so much about it. That, you know, is like, I think a lot of founders still have to figure it out. And it's actually really hard to start a credit card company. We just decided, you know, we knew how to do it. And we're going to out-execute everybody because of it. So where was this in the life cycle of your, your YC program? Like, we gave up on VR probably two, three weeks in. And we came up with this idea, you know, with the YC partners. YC actually helped a lot on this um, probably in, the, in March um, of the winter batch. So, you know, two months in or so. Mm-hmm. So we took a month kind of going back and forth with ideas and then landed on this, you know. And then you, by the end. and then so, so was like one month left in the program or something? Yeah. And so how far along did you get it? Oh, we had zero. We just fundraised. You basically. fundraised just on the idea. Yeah. But again, it's, it's different because, you know, we had built and sold a payments company before. So, you know, we had, we already knew a lot of investors, like we had some credibility, like, you know, it's not like if we were fundraising for VR, it would be different. Um, Marginally. I mean, you've already been a successful founder, so I imagine, and you've got connections, I imagine there's probably a lot of investors that just say, Henrique, you've you got a new business, here you go, I don't care what it is. Yeah, yeah, we probably could have, you know, raised some money, I think, but not maybe as much from as credible investors as, you know, we ended up doing by Brex, by having a company in the same sector. Sure, so did you raise a lot of money from credible investors? Uh, we raised, you know, for, at that point, seven and a half million with an idea, which, you know, for the time, it was great. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's still, that would still be great. Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, for the stage of the company, you know, from right. an idea today, you know, it would be different, but... Right, how comp- would it be different today? Well, today we're much larger, raising seven and a half million. Right, but I'm saying like, you guys are coming out of YC, you're 17 years old or whatever, going to Stanford today, coming out, and you've got an idea, and you're halfway through YC, you'd still be able to raise money. hundred percent. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. Um, okay, so you've got this idea. So tell us what the idea was at that point. At that point, we were like, okay, there's all these startups and, you know, some of them can't even get credit cards and the others won't have to personally guarantee the cards. So we thought that was dumb because they raised like millions of dollars. Why do they have, you know, they can't get cards if they raise millions of dollars. Um, so that's kind of like, you know, where the, the, the idea came from. Um, 
And then, you know, today what we do is that uh, we basically issue, you know, corporate credit cards. Um, and today we only do it for two sectors, which is startups and e-commerce. Um, the first one we launched was startups. E-commerce is kind of recent. Um, but startups, you know, the idea is, hey, we can give you higher limits than everybody else with no personal guarantee. And you can go from zero to a working car in five minutes. And besides that, the products is just like, you know, how a product you would expect the tech company to be. Like very easy, intuitive, you know, easy to add users, change limits, expense management makes it easy, you know, better reporting. Just like if you were to design a credit card from scratch, from first principles, how would you build it? That's what we did. Right. So it's delightful to use. Yes. Um, and you have different, I'm assuming you have different underwriting standards than what a traditional. We do, because instead of underwriting based on your financial history, for startups, we underwrite based on your cash. So if you raise cash, you know, we give you a card. If you haven't raised cash, unlikely we'll give you a card. Got it. Um, and then what we found out was that, you know, now similar strategies we could use uh, for startups, we could use for e-commerce as well. So recently we launched our e-commerce card that, you know, it's quite different um, in the sense of it's still a corporate card, but instead of paying in 30 days, you have 60 days to pay. So, you know, you have like this free 60 day credit line. What, so whatever you swipe today, you only pay 60 days from now. Sure. Whatever you swipe tomorrow, you only pay 61 days from now, you know, and so forth. So it's like this actual free line of credit for e-commerces um, and instead of underwrites based on cash we underwrite based on you know their sales volumes so as they sell more you know we um uh as they sell more they could give a, get a higher limit as you know they sell less they get a lower limit right okay i mean i buy it it's it's pretty interesting so you come out of yc you raise seven and a half million dollars you've got this idea to make uh, corporate credit cards, delightfully easy experience. Like, where does the company go from there? I mean, it's all happening very, very fast. I kind of want to get like a little bit of a timeline of it. Yeah. So, you know, what happened was we raised the money probably end of March. Um, then we took probably, you know, a year and like we just launched in June 18. Between March 17 and June 18, we're just building the platform. 15 months building. Yeah. It's difficult to build a credit card. It's really difficult to build a credit card. We need to get a lot of partnerships, a lot of banking deals. Like, you know, we need to build the entire credit card stack from scratch. So, like, you know, building all the credit card processing thing, that's something that hasn't been done for a while. We build it all from scratch in these 15 months. Um, so it took a long time, but it was worth it because then when we launched in June, it just started growing very, very fast. I mean, and you had some cool, aggressive kind of marketing campaigns. Yeah. Then, you know, the, the marketing campaigns came as it was honestly like, you know, I would like to take credit for this idea. It wasn't my idea. It was, you know, our head of sales that came up with the idea. Um, and the idea was, well, let's get some billboards in the city, you know, when we launch, just so people, you know, know who it is when we, you know, outbound them and stuff like that. And... At the time, it was like this innocent thing. We didn't think it would yield results or anything. It was just, you know, oh, let's get some awareness kind of, kind of play. And it wasn't that expensive. So like, okay, let's do it. Um, but it turned out to be the best thing we ever did. And we've been doubling down that strategy since. Um, because the thing is like that we found out is that, you know, the, because it's harder to measure, the cost per qualified view of a billboard for us in San Francisco is so much lower than like Google, Facebook or whatever. What do you, what do you mean by that? <laughs> The cost per, your cost per view on a billboard is lower than Google's cost per view on a billboard? No, no, no. Uh, cheaper than, you know, buying a Google ad. Oh, sure, because there's a lot of people that are going to see it. 
Yeah, yeah, a lot of people, you know, we put a billboard around here, a bunch of people pass through and like, because billboards can't directly measure how much their ROI was, you know, they can't charge for it. Right. So they're cheaper, you know, because Google can measure that, they charge a lot more for it. Sure. So have other startups copied you now? Everyone, everyone wants billboards? Uh, I think we have. Yeah, definitely a lot of startups yeah. copying us. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. So Henrique, how do you, like you're a CEO now, I mean, your job's obviously has probably changed a lot over the course of this company's history how do you describe like your responsibilities now you know i think as the company grows the responsibilities um change a lot but today a lot of responsibilities just on you know management the you know dealing with the executive team hiring um vision etc um i'm still pretty involved with like recruiting a lot like i spend a lot of my time recruiting uh, and also with new product initiatives. So, you know, like launching the e-commerce card and then, you know, next things that we're doing, stuff like that. Um, what about on the technology side of it? You're less involved now? Uh, I haven't been involved since Pagarma. Pedro was a much better engineer than I was. And he just said, Enrique, go do all the other stuff. Let me code. You're not good enough. So, so. Is, he, is that still the division of responsibility? He's, he's still doing that? Um, no, he, he does a lot more. Uh, today like he we have a head of engineering now uh, he manages like uh, you know m most of the executive team um and so i do a lot of more like more external facing roles and he does a lot of internal facing roles cool and like you said in the beginning is this a problem that you can work on for the next 20 years yes this is a problem i want to work on for the next 20 years how, how come it's just very big it's very big yeah i mean every startup every company has a credit card i mean the startup the vertical you're going for now is startups and e-commerce but we hope to expand you know down the line sector. Right. um the only thing is because like one of the things that's important for us is like we don't want to bucket smbs into like you know oh smb is like you know one thing like we want to go and understand each business and like do what's the best experience for them so that's why we take our time to do startups and e-commerce and whatever the next is because we go deep in understanding the problems from that vertical and how to underwrite them and how to you know create specific rewards for them and features for them and all of that, right? right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's like a long-term kind of thing. And if you think about that in a global basis, it's even longer, right? So we want to keep working on this for a long time. Right. And you talked about in the beginning setting up all these partnerships. I mean, there's regulations and and rules and laws. and um, But you guys aren't a bank, right? You're, you're, We're a, layer, not a, you're a layer that sits on top of... A bank. Correct. Um, and how was it getting those partnerships? Like you're a startup. Banks usually like to work with you know mature companies, stable cash flows. Was it was that was it was that simple? Yeah. So you know, there's a lot of techniques to doing that. I think that comes came a little bit of the experience. You know, when I said that having built that company before, we kind of knew what to do. Like our first two hires were a general counsel and a CFO. Um, so, you know, they add a lot of experience and credibility to that process. So whenever we got to the first meeting of the bank, we were already so well prepared that they're like, oh, these guys are not like a regular startup. You know, there was like these very senior people that joined really early on and helped us prepare the materials. We, we thought about every single question they might have and we already preempted them. Sure. Uh, that makes, that makes perfect sense. So Enrique, like the, la the last couple of questions of this podcast, they usually talk about, uh, you know, along the lines of, of advice, you know, you've kind of had this just like rocket ship career. I mean, you ha had a couple of stumbles in the, in the very early days of things that didn't, didn't work out. But like, what do you tell someone, you know, that's like kind of just trying to find their, their place in the world. Like maybe they're at Stanford, maybe they're just out of Stanford. Like they don't really know like what they should be doing. Like any, any guidance there? Um, my advice is a little bit, you know, not what reduces risk, but more what increases outcome so i'm not saying that everyone who follows this will have a successful career 
but I think, you know, um, if you forget just the risk factor, you know, just the outcome part, you know, this is probably a good idea. Um, but in general, I think what you should do is that you would should optimize as most of you can to being around few people, not everybody, but few people that are much, much smarter than you. And, you know, and like do whatever it takes to be around those people. If that is, you know, getting a job in a startup or at a big company or whatever that means for you or college, or just like try to imagine what you want to get and try to like, you know, go hang out with these people. So I, like, you know, very from a very early age, like I got to work at that startup and I was, you know, it was very early stage startup and I got to spend a lot of time with like the founder, right? And I wanted to be that. And then I spent so much time. I learned so much from him and that allowed me to go and do the next thing. So I think being obsessive about spending a lot of time with, you know, and do molding your life to be able to spend time with people you admire and you can learn from is like the best way to, to do it. Because what you're going to figure out in the end is that those people are not that much smarter than you, you know? And you're going to start thinking like, oh, wow, these things that I thought were like impossible are actually possible. Like these people are smart, but, you know, not like 20x smart than you. You know, if you meet them for one hour, you might be blown away. But if you're working with them in day to day, you're going to be like, OK, like, you know, this is possible. Like all of this makes sense and it adds up. Right. Some of the mystical stuff around Elon Musk starts to fade away once you're with him every single day. Exactly. Exactly. I don't know about Elon. You know, he seems like the man, but he might be a whole different thing. Yeah. But you're talking about most people. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I like that advice, Enrique. And then the last question here, you know, the people that listen to this podcast, the audience of it, um, they're hardworking, they're working in tech, they're working in finance. Um, and like a major theme of this podcast is I talk about providing value. You know, you want to get a job, don't just ask someone for a job. Find a way to provide value to that person. Help that person's role, career, company, whatever out. Is there anything that listeners of the show can do for you that would provide value to you? Yes. Um, refer us great people to work here, um, especially in engineering. We're always, you know, lacking and wanting to hire more. And, you know, get startups and e-commerce to use Brex. <laughs> cool. Well, Enrique, this was cool speaking with you. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me over. Thank you so much for, for having me. Thanks for listening today. Let me know what you think. Leave us a review on iTunes and tell your friends about this podcast.